Whether the film No Country for Old Men presents a theological perspective. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. I mentioned at the end of a couple of Inappropriate Conversations podcasts ago, number 210, called Podcast Montage, was released in the middle of June. And in it, I kind of uh, played clips and rarities from shows that I've been invited to be a part of over the years, including one that I wrote but did not record myself for a simply syndicated podcast called Books You Should Read. The book that I reviewed on that early effort was called The Dame in the Kimono by Leonard Leff and others. And in the process of kind of covering that material, it dawned on me that maybe some elements of the motion picture production code, the pre-movie rating system, system that we had back then, has not gone fully away. And as I looked at that, and this was maybe 10 years ago, give or take, it dawned on me, the movie that came most to my mind was No Country for Old Men. So let me set the stage, and then I'm going to do something I rarely do, either on Inappropriate Conversations or here on Walk the Earth, and that's a blog reading, to read something all the way through. Now in this case, it's not really a blog reading, because... I don't know that this essay that I've written uh, back in 2008 has been shared with maybe more than a handful of people. Uh, my wife and one of her coworkers have read it. Some friends of mine through Simply Syndicated have read it, but I've never really published it. It's not even a blog available on inappropriateconversations.org. So this, in its own strange way, will be a debut. And maybe a little bit of context would help before I start, and before I start with scripture, as a matter of fact. No Country for Old Men, Coen Brothers' film, came out in um, November 2007 and became the Best Picture winner at the Oscar ceremony uh, end of February 2008. I was not able to see it when it was first run in the theaters. Part of the reason for that is that I'm a much bigger fan of the Coen Brothers than my wife. Another reason was the movie had developed quite a reputation for being not just violent, but ultra-violent. And in many ways, there's some validity to that claim. There is more violence in No Country for Old Men than in the movie A Clockwork Orange. I think that's at least arguably true. On the other hand, I think that there's a difference in the violence between the two films. And maybe for No Country for Old Men, the fact that it's more or less realistic or far more realistic made it for a lot of people far more disturbing. And it made my wife decide she didn't want to see it. So... When the movie won Best Picture, the uh, film was reissued in second-run cinema, called the Dollar Cinema, and I finally got to see it probably in March of 2008. And from that moment forward, several weeks, or at least several days went by, with me trying to consider what I'd seen from a couple of perspectives. First, was this movie some sort of evil that needed to be avoided, which, not from my wife, but from other people in my circles, was a suggestion, or at least a whisper. And second... Was I right to perceive that there was something profoundly theological going on there? At the very least, something that 
raised questions about the historical motion picture production code and the rules embedded therein. That code was among the things that the filmmakers in the 1970s rebelled against so forcefully producing films like A Clockwork Orange and Midnight Cowboy in the wake of that sort of artistic rebellion. So in the midst of giving that some serious prayerful consideration, it never dawned on me that this might be a question and answer that made sense in the context of Walk the Earth. And yet here I am, turning the title of this essay into a question and answering it on Walk the Earth. So the bulk of this particular um, Walk the Earth episode will be an essay that I called Whose Country, Whose World? A Theological Perspective on No Country for Old Men, written in April of 2008. And I want to begin with some scripture citations right up front. In fact, I may come back to one of these passages at the end as well. We'll see. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, and Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. These are all letters from Paul or Peter in the New Testament. From Romans. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. From 1 Peter. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And from Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. The Letters in the New Testament from Paul and Peter. There are some, 
some, I don't know that it's not a good many, who would deny that no country for old men has religious themes. Not many, maybe not any. Instead, they reckon it's nothing but an amoral bloodbath with nearly two dozen murders and no justice to be found. They are wrong. Mind you, not about the body count, nor about the utterly vacant feeling that justice is somehow an unreasonable expectation. They are wrong about the theme, the moral of the story. That theme? To be of this world is to expect a worldly solution to the problem of evil, like a final shootout between the sheriff and the killer. The sheriff in No Country for Old Men tells us right up front that he does not intend to be part of this world. He will not put his soul at hazard at a time when he's still waiting for God to come into his life. For what is still a majority of motion picture history, forces both within and alongside Hollywood have protected society from movies like No Country for Old Men. It's interesting to note that comparatively little has been done by publishers to protect readers from books like Cormac McCarthy's novel. Joel and Ethan Cohen have adopted McCarthy's book honestly, but there has always been a double standard over the morality of movies compared to other art forms, modern or otherwise. During the time the U.S. Motion Picture Production Code, dating back to the early 1930s, directors like the Coens could not have adapted McCarthy's novel for the screen. No changes to tone down violence or remove the very limited profanity need be offered, the issue would have revolved entirely around the fate of the antagonist. Not to give away the plot, but even the characters in the story know how ordinary people are going to fare. Not well. Not at resisting temptation, nor at overpowering the forces of darkness. It is easy, and not inaccurate, to presume that the Code set a standard in order to protect Christian values. Yet, deeply challenging films like this one make it clear that this facet of those principles blatantly lacks a Christian worldview. There is nothing Christian about insisting that evil will always be overcome through the efforts of mere humans. I would summarize the difference in this manner. Evil exists. Jesus warned us not just about sin or even evil, but an evil one who stands as ruler over this fallen world. On our own, Mere humans have no power to defeat once angelic forces that function in a spiritual realm. True faith involves not just a hope in God's salvation, but a clear understanding about what we are being saved from. It seems harsh to attack Will Hayes, Joseph Breen, and others who administered the code in its various forms. On one hand, their intent was clearly good. On the other... Their methods were probably more practical and strategic than we acknowledge today. A more generous description would be that of a greater good in the form of compromise. In this respect, their goal was both to protect the public from offensive material and also protect the film industry from government censorship. If we credit that era, or even our current rating system, for making the modern art of filmmaking more moral than it would have been from mere market forces, what was the impact on society? Historian Martin E. Marty has described the religious in America as, quote, a nation of behaviors, as opposed to a nation of believers. This problem runs far deeper than our response to movies and censorship, and Marty may not agree with my perspective. That said, 
If we focused on good triumphing over evil at the expense of Christ's perspective and Peter's and Paul's, then we are behaving yet not believing. Five decades ago, the code was replaced by what has become our modern MPAA rating system. Within the first decade, every rule in the old book was broken. In many cases, films of high artistic quality rose from the remains of the old guidelines. We take violence, nudity, profanity, and drug abuse completely for granted today. Those rules were the face of the code, and the features were in many ways only skin deep. No Country for Old Men provides a stunning reminder of how we often still cling to the standards embedded within the code. Consider the most highly regarded villains in classic good-guy-bad-guy storytelling. We are no more sympathetic to Hannibal Lecter or Commodus than Hazer Breen would have endorsed. And there is rarely ever a sense that even supernatural forces like Sauron or Darth Vader are, quote, understood, unquote, to have control over the world. The most disturbing scenes for most viewers in No Country for Old Men will have nothing to do with innocent bystanders being slaughtered like cattle, literally slaughtered like cattle. Javier Berdem's well-deserved credit for his insistent and controlled threat of violence in each scene, including those with no dialogue, may not linger longest when the story's over. The biggest challenge may be our archetypal expectations that McCarthy and the Coens leave unfulfilled, a code broken, and what it tells a nation of behaviors about what we truly believe. You've been warned. Now to the plot, which the Coens have relied heavily on McCarthy to provide. Hunting alone on a hot Texas afternoon, Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin, encounters a drug deal gone horribly wrong. Along with drugs and several dead bodies, Moss encounters one severely wounded survivor and a satchel with more than $2 million in cash. Already making his way to the scene is Anton Chigur, Bardem, hired by the money man behind the fateful transaction. Chigur is cold, methodical, and psychopathic. He pursues Moss to recover the money and execute a judgment against the hunter for inconveniencing him, as one character puts it. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones, learns details too late to intervene as these events unfold, and he spends his time trying to determine the best way to catch up. There are other important characters who play less prominent roles. Moss's wife flees to her childhood home upstate, where her mother is suffering from cancer. Bell's wife and his staff at the sheriff's office assist at crucial points of plot development and exposition. Shakur is racing against a group of Mexicans, also trying to recover the money. And Carson Wells, a man in a similar line of work, is sent by the money man to protect his interests by circumvening or reining in Shakur while still recovering the $2 million. Even those in league with the antagonist recognize the Faustian bargain they have made as a mistake. For such a simple story, it is challenging to summarize. So much of what happens in the movie does not hang on the framework of events. The devil is in the details, so to speak, and what details. Two examples should suffice, flipping a coin and blowing out locks. Chigurh believes in chance. His universe is random, disordered. He seems to prefer being the most, if not only, coldly calculating element at play. In an early scene, 
Shiger flips a coin to determine whether he will kill a gas station attendant that he finds annoyingly nosy. Call it, he tells the man, who only vaguely develops any sense of what is at stake. We've already seen the antagonist very calmly commit two murders, in a manner that could best be described as necessary. Here, though, Shigur leaves everything to chance. His approach rebels against any notion of natural order or providential design. One of his primary weapons is a cattle gun, a piston that at close range kills as effectively as a bullet to the brain. He also uses it to gain access through locked doors by blowing out the cylinder of deadbolts and doorknobs. At the center of the film, both thematically and sequentially, Moss and Shigur meet, well, as close to a meeting as any of the principal characters get, over one of those punched-out locks. The 15 minutes straddling the midpoint of these two hours are a crowning achievement for the Coens. The tension doesn't just build, it swells. Plot elements like a ringing telephone, slight noises through a wall, a hallway light going dim, and the cylinder of a lock flying out of its door each build to a crescendo that ebbs only slightly before the next one overtakes it. The suspense is so powerful that many viewers find themselves laughing inappropriately at the slightest moments of relief, comic or otherwise. Yes, an innocent bystander getting his brain blown through his skull is both shocking and tragic, but it earns embarrassing or ironic laughter. And it isn't comic relief, per se, because the Coens do not yet leave any time for relief. Minutes later, in film time, the comic relief finally comes from the fading notes of an Rotegno band's serenade. No words are exchanged between protagonist, Moss, for the sake of argument, and antagonist until much later, when Shigur intercepts a phone call and has his say with Moss. There is nothing shocking in screenplay terms about their conversation. Shigur threatens to kill Moss's wife unless the money is returned. With no real guarantee of his wife's safety, not to mention his own, Moss vows to strike Shigur first. Sheriff Bell knows enough to anticipate these circumstances, but he is not able to intervene. Part of Bell's problem is the reality of chasing incidents as a law enforcement officer. Another part, less practical, but just as real, is Bell's doubt about whether he ought to wrangle with an evil he does not understand. Actually, this plot summary may not be simple enough. It is helpful to break it down further. Through deadly evil actions of others that our main character, and every man, has never met, he comes face to face with a temptation. Without an immediate and easy opportunity to do the right thing, he takes the money and runs. Set at the beginning of the 1980s, Moss has no cell phone he can use to dial 911. He has no reason to fear the corpses or even the dying Mexican who has begged him for water. He has been isolated with a simple choice, a temptation. Contrasting with this everyman is a force of evil, evil. Shigur treats people like cattle, and not only when he uses his cattle gun as a means of destruction. He shows far less care for his human victims than the hunter does for his prey. Moss is upset when he fails to cleanly and humanely kill the antelope he is pursuing at the beginning of the film. Part of that is the long day of tracking ahead if he wants to retrieve the animal. Equally, though, is a sense that he doesn't want to leave the animal for dead and would prefer to take his catch. By contrast, the carcasses left on the ground like roadkill and no country for old men are people, dropped unceremoniously by Shigur because they got in his way. 
Finally, the force of good, or at any rate, the police force. The sheriff tells a family friend near the end of the movie that he feels overmatched. He's already shown us as much. Bell is not capable of being the good to bring evil to justice or even provide a meaningful balance. His problem is faith, both literally and in the sense that Ingmar Bergman used in his 1960s Faith Trilogy. Quoting Bell, I thought God would come into my life as I grew older, he tells an old friend, but he didn't. I don't blame him. If I was him, I'd have the same opinion of me. It's a crucial transposition from the novel, where Bell disagrees with his friend for sharing this thought. It's important for the plot of the screenplay that these doubts belong to Bell. The sheriff is a stranger in this landscape, even though he's been sheriff here for decades. The times have changed on him, and he no more speaks the language than the travelers in Bergman's The Silence. Bell is losing faith on multiple levels. A comparison to the disillusioned pastor in Winter Light seems to hang over Bell, from his monologue about his doubts to his sense of despair at the crimes being committed in his county. The ending resonated with me as deeply as the closing lines of Through a Glass Darkly. In Bergman's film, the tragic events have ripped a family apart. At the same time, those circumstances finally forced the nearly estranged middle-aged father and teenage son to speak and listen to each other. Their conversation doesn't tie up the loose ends, and it doesn't provide any big meaning to everything. On the larger questions, the father's answers to his son honestly reveal his own confusion. What matters is the effort more than the result. The hope Bergman shows between his characters comes from the nearly unwarranted smile on the son's face and his final words to the camera, Papa, talk to me. Each of those Bergman films is simultaneously heartbreaking, uplifting, and brilliant. No Country for Old Men shares those qualities. The Coen's work is more direct, filled with violent imagery, and presented with an evil we can see. What Bergman leaves ambiguous, Joel and Ethan Coen put in our faces. They don't settle for cliché, though. What would that cliché look like? Well, every man makes a simple mistake. Innocent seems like the wrong word, even an inappropriate category. But he makes a simple mistake. Evil comes to strike him down. Good steps in to save the day. Evil is thwarted or even destroyed. Every man is restored to his proper place. Good, in humility, refuses to accept any reward and rides off into the sunset. There is nothing wrong with that classic Western plotline. It was blessed for decades by the Motion Picture Production Code. Following that mold has led film producers to the feel-good movie of many past summers in many previous years. What it lacks is a theological truth that the Coens preserved from McCarthy's book. While the Coens aren't using the standard subtext that viewers instinctively expect, the background should not be foreign to us. It comes from the dark side of Scripture, a warning that echoes the letters of Paul and Peter. Moss sinned. Simple as that. He faced temptation unsuccessfully. As a result, Shigur stalked him like a prowling lion intent on consuming his entire world. Bell recognized the danger, but he also knew he was not equipped to face pure evil alone. His heart was in the right place, genuinely caring for those placed within his jurisdiction as a law enforcement officer, but his soul was not. Bell had the law on his side, along with whatever arsenal his office could provide. 
and he had wisdom, the wherewithal to know that all the firepower at his disposal could not stand against the spiritual forces of evil he was likely to encounter in the darkest corners of this story. Radio and podcast host Hank Hanegraaff refers to Paul's analogy in Ephesians 6 in his book about spiritual warfare, The Covering. Like Sheriff Bell, Hanegraaff dismisses the idea that human weapons are relevant in a satanic showdown. Instead, he recommends putting on the full armor of God, truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, scripture, and prayer. Paraphrasing Hanegraaff from his broadcasts, Satan has no power against you if you are equipped as the Bible recommends. But if you try to stand your ground on your own using human means, then you are a guaranteed casualty, Hanegraaff says. Bell wants to save Moss. Bell also wants a relationship with the Lord, but he knows opportunities have passed him by. He knows he isn't right with God. If Bell seems powerless, it's because he is. Moss is less aware of his spiritual condition than the sheriff. Still, he does share a very practical understanding of his circumstances with his wife. Things happen, he tells her, when she asks the why questions. You can't take them back. As an everyman, Moss does not intend anyone to get hurt. His conscience leads him back to help the perched and dying Mexican, hours later, hours too late. Shigur's allegation that Moss gambled away his wife's safety is told with the psychopathic conviction that Bardem masters throughout the performance. We still know that it's a lie, a twisted misinterpretation. When Moss calls Carson Wells for help, we know that he will do anything to put things back as they were. Berlin communicates all this and much more with his silence as much as his voice. His character has few lines as the hunter who becomes hunted, even so, Brolin mumbles the best of them to great effect. A final note on the religious element at play in No Country for Old Men applies well beyond Christianity. The impact Moss's sin has upon those around him could just as well be described as karma by a Hindu or Buddhist. Our mistakes and issues often hurt those we don't intend to hurt. Moss's wife, Carla Jean, is the obvious example, and yet her connection is actually quite direct. Other characters with nothing but chance to relate them to Moss are swept into darkness with him. Examples include the promiscuous woman at the pool in one of the hotels Moss uses as he flees, and the pickup truck driver Moss flags down during the gunfight in the street. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you, Moss says with conviction and even honesty, and yet that road stop has fatal consequences. By giving in to temptation, Moss lost all his ability to make good on such promises. In McCarthy's novel, Moss shelters a runaway he fully intends to help. If he cannot talk her into returning home, he at least commits to protecting her financially with his stolen money. It is to his credit that he maneuvers to keep her off the streets. He sets a positive example by refusing to take sexual advantage of her in exchange for his generosity, even though she is so clearly willing. His efforts fail, though. In his sin and circumstances, Moss is in no position to help anyone. He has become a guaranteed casualty. One distinguishing characteristic in the careers of Joel and Ethan Cohen has been their strong individualism. I resist describing this as a classic American character trait that it probably is. The reason, it is not a trait we should credit with American filmmaking. To the contrary, 
Traditional Hollywood movies demonstrate the exact opposite. A herd mentality responsible for so many sequels, imitation gangster movies, and frightfully derivative slashing gore flicks. If the Coens were pressured into placing a movie ending at the conclusion of McCarthy's story, they resisted with conviction. Appreciation has been mixed. I've heard some say they liked everything up until the ending. Some felt betrayed by a sense that the plot was building up to an epic moment that the Coens denied them. Not only that, but the primary characters hardly appear in scenes together, much less on screen. The crucial and decisive moments in their lives happen off-screen, or even off-script. I humbly offer this response. The principal characters in No Country for Old Men believe in something. Moss is practical, enough so that his common sense tells him he is facing a final showdown. Sugar believes in consequences and chance, and he lives his life as the dealer rather than the gambler. He wants the house odds in his favor. Bell believes that there is a heaven to balance the hell he is witnessing, and he maintains a hope that those who love him are waiting for him there. The behavior of these characters does not permit a dirty, hairy ending to this crime drama. They make choices as if they were archetypes in a much different, even much larger story than mere cops and robbers. Bell, for example, dreams that his father has gone ahead of him into the darkness to prepare a campfire and a place for him when his journey is over. Does his dream refer to the sheriff's actual father who died years earlier? Or is Bell receiving subconscious assurances from his heavenly father? No Country for Old Men does not answer these questions. A nation of behaviors may find that disappointing. A nation of believers, on the other hand, should be delighted that a film of this artistic quality is asking the right questions when the violence temporarily subsides. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Almighty God, so often in the church we seek simple answers and simple situations. We want the words in our Bible to be written in black and white, starkly, all black, all white, so much so that some don't even have time for the red letters so often used when Jesus is quoted. Lord, help us to get beyond the simple, both the simple scenarios and the simple solutions. I found, when I was watching this controversial film, things which I believed revealed to me some of the things that a generation earlier you might have been revealing to viewers through the films of a frankly doubting and doubtful Swedish filmmaker when it comes to questions of faith. Lord, thank you for offering faith questions and perhaps faith answers in medium as materialistic as film, in films as materialistic as, as R-rated movies filled with violence, language, suspense, even terror. Lord, help me to reject the simple answers as I encounter them, and help me to continue, hopefully, to find, even in the most mundane of popular entertainment, places where tie-outs to your scripture are so very clear that it's hard for me to deny them and hard for me to ignore them, forcing me at times to write it down. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. So but water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent.
shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. everybody this is taylor and taffy and or dan and we want to talk to you about a great opportunity <laughs> this is an infomercial? for a timeshare <laughs> so this is an infomercial yeah we want to talk to you about pride 48 this year yay the annual pride yay the annual pride 48 expo is coming back and it is august 24th through the 26th of 2018 and it's not in our usual place we're going someplace new Taffy, where are we going? Um, we are going to the one and only New Orleans, Louisiana. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, At Brodan, the Holiday Inn Superdome. Yes. Did she say that correctly? Is it New Orleans or New Orleans? New Orleans. Or is it New Orleans? No, uh, I'm not. I'm not proper Southern enough to, or proper Cajun enough to say New Orleans. So I would yeah. just go with the New Orleans. New Orleans. Okay. New Orleans. All right. So and it is. It is going to be a lot of fun. It is going to be as we said, August 24th through the 26th at the Holiday Inn Superdome. We uh, what 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 can we expect at the Pride 48 Expo? I think Rodan put it best when he said it's the Pride 48 Petting Zoo. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the thing I want to refer to as next is next on Walk the Earth. Or next on inappropriate conversations. But I do want to share chapter 12 from the letter to the Romans in its entirety. Because that has words that are going to be relevant to, hopefully, a future podcast recording. My intent is to look back on some of the scriptural challenges that were put forth a few years ago. Shortly after the uh, Supreme Court made its ruling about marriage equality. People demanding justification for Christians like me who had a different worldview than the typically toxic Christian answers to issues of the day. Romans 12 was a centerpiece to some of the best responses I heard from other believers who share my sense of what the Bible, or what Jesus in particular, had to say. I think now's the right time to say thanks for listening, and let me give the Apostle Paul the last word. Romans chapter 12, the Good News Translation. So then, my brothers and sisters, because of God's So then, my brothers and sisters, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. <laughs> 
Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to him and is perfect. And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. We have many parts in the one body, and all these parts have different functions. In the same way, though we are many, we are one body in union with Christ, and we are all joined to each other as different parts of one body. So we are to use the different parts in accordance with the grace God has given us. If our gift is to speak God's message, we should do it according to the faith we have. If it is to serve, we should serve. If it is to teach, we should teach. If it is to encourage others, we should do so. Whoever shares with others should do it generously. Whoever has authority should work hard. Whoever shows kindness to others should do it cheerfully. Love must be completely sincere. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another warmly as Christian brothers and sisters, and be eager to show respect for one another. Work hard and do not be lazy. Serve the Lord with a full heart of devotion. Let your hope keep you joyful. Be patient in your troubles and pray at all times. Share your belongings with your needy fellow Christians and open your homes to strangers. Ask God to bless those who persecute you. Yes, ask him to bless, not to curse. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Have the same concern for everyone. Do not be proud, but accept humble duties. Do not think of yourself as wise. If someone has done you wrong, do not repay him with a wrong. Try to do what everyone considers to be good. Do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everyone. Never take revenge, my friends, but instead let God's anger do it. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay back, says the Lord. Instead, as the scripture says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them a drink. For by doing this, you will make them burn with shame. Do not let evil defeat you. Instead, conquer evil with good. Romans chapter 12. This show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows.